0: Rust Belt Roundup, Episode 1, The Origins of Ohio. For the modern American citizen, thoughts of Ohio mostly center around jokes at the state's expense. Humor based upon how polite the people are, the prevalence of the word Ope, terrible football records, the image of a state which is 90% corn, and the infamous Ohio goodbye. But, my dear listener, there once was a time when Ohio was considered more than just the butt of a joke, During the 1950s through the 80s, the Midwest was considered part of the industrial heartland of the U.S. Ohio, in particular, was the beating heart of industry in the United States, each beat drawing in raw materials and sending out finished products to fuel the growing economy. This podcast series, if it was not already clear, will be exploring the history of Ohio centered around how the state went from the beating heart of the nation to the decaying Rust Belt it is today, and even explore how the ideas of the Rust Belt don't truly fit all of Ohio. Let's give the Buckeye State its day in the sun, shall we? To understand how Ohio became the beating heart of the heartland, it is important to dive into the primordial soup of the state and explore how Ohio came into being and what factors would eventually lead to it becoming so vital to the industrial explosion the U.S. experienced following the Great Depression and into the Cold War. To start things off, it is important to discuss the early pre-colonial history of the Ohio region. That being said, I will only be giving a brief summary of this history, saving the deep dive for another time and another podcast. Prior to the invasion of the region by the European colonial powers, the region we now know today as Ohio was populated by three main indigenous tribal nations, the Shawnee, the Kickapoo, and the Erie. These three tribes settled in the region which broadly makes up modern-day Ohio for centuries and developed around some of the key geographical features of the region which would play a key role in its later industrialization. Those geographical areas being the Great Lakes and the river systems which flowed throughout the region. The name Ohio itself is derived from the Iroquois word Oyoyo, which means Great River. Following the colonization of the New World by the European powers, the tribes of the region came into contact with the French, who used the lakes and rivers as trading highways for furs during the early 1700s. Following the wars of the New World between the British and the French and the newly founded United States, the Ohio Valley region became a wash in forcibly migrated tribes from the eastern coast and Appalachian region. These new tribes further settled along the many rivers and waterways found throughout the state, using them as territorial boundaries, trading pathways, and natural defensive bulwarks against both other tribes and the fast encroaching United States. Ohio would, over time, be overtaken by the U.S. and the native tribes subjugated, obliterated, or pushed further west. Around this time is when we first start to see the idea of Ohio take root in the minds of the settlers as they interacted with the lands of the Shawnee, Kickapoo, and Erie. Prior to the 1780s, the area which is now Ohio was originally claimed by Virginia. Through political dealings and civil disputes, the idea of large superstates being an extension of the westernmost colonial states was dropped, and by 1787, the land of Ohio was made part of the Northwest Territories. Today, Ohio has become known as a battleground and swing state when it comes to the political landscape of the United States. And the origins of this battleground mindset can be found in the early territorial years before statehood. Very early on, the settlers of the Northwest Territory became fed up with what they viewed as an autocratic, slow, and ineffective central governmental authority and swiftly began campaigning for the right to self-governance and statehood. This early political interest and fierce independence streak would come to define Ohio throughout the years and would make the future state a prime location for businesses during the Industrial Revolution. Another key feature of the Ohioan mindset which would emerge during this time was the fierce local loyalties people felt and still feel to this day. During this early stage of development, people who would soon become Ohioans held an idea that the local authority was very important, the local identity of towns was important, and this fast set a precedent for local loyalty amongst the population. While they were all swiftly becoming Ohioans, they were Clevelanders and Cincinnatians first and foremost. These local identities would play a large role not only in the future sports rivalries, which would come to define the Buckeye state, but would also define the power local industries had, the pride people would feel in their local industrial plants and the workers, and why the heartland mindset would take root so heavily in the minds of the people and of the state and why the Rust Belt decline in the state would hurt so much. By 1803, the Northwest Territory would become the state of Ohio, becoming the 17th state in the Union. Now with statehood came the responsibility to develop and grow, essentially playing catch-up with the older 16 states, and the original 13 in particular. Ohio, it would seem, was more than up for the task, and swiftly boomed in both population and development. Ohio was uniquely suited to become a key part of the Union for a multitude of reasons. First of all, it is a generously sized state, comprising roughly 44,825 square miles, much of which is a diverse range of farmable land and lush forests, coupled with its ports along the Great Lakes and the river networks which crisscross the state. It was dealt a winning hand in the early development phase and used these assets to their fullest advantage. The city of Cincinnati was a prime example of the early beats the heartland was taking towards becoming the center of trade and industry in the United States. During the 1700s and early 1800s, the town of Cincinnati would use its placement upon the hinterlands and rivers specifically located along the American Nile, and became a large steamboat harbor for resupply between the northern markets of Ohio and the southern ports of New Orleans, and from there to the rest of the world. The city would become a glimpse at the future as it swiftly began developing early industries along the rivers, such as glasswork and iron casting. Cincinnati and the Miami Valley region developed along the rivers, lakes, and canals of the state, thriving off of these pre-railroad superhighways of the early United States. But the strength of Ohio would always lie in its diversity, and these early developmental days were no different. The history of the Western Reserve would come to show the perseverance of the Ohio people and how quickly they take advantage of opportunity when it presents itself. The early history of the Western Reserve is that of diversity and hardship. Sworn by immigrants, the fertile land seemed like the perfect spot to settle down and grow. But without easy access to the rivers, and thus the markets of the south or east, the Western Reserve quickly became a trapped and stagnant region of desperate peoples from all across Europe and even Africa. Though the land was fertile and the crop yield good, no money flowed, and thus no progress was made. Without easy access to markets, good crops couldn't be sold without expensive transportation fees, and thus the farmers couldn't make a profit. Despite these hardships, the people held on, and finally, when the Erie Canal was built in 1825, the Western Reserve went into overdrive. The village of Cleveland, the key location of the region, held a population of well under 5,000. By 1835, the population passed the 5,000 mark. The population then rose over 6,000 by 1840 and up to 43,000 by 1860. The now city would continue to grow and eventually even surpass Cincinnati, the queen city of Ohio. This sudden burst of development showed the potential of the state and the drive of the people in it to improve their lives and grow as fast as they can. Economically speaking, the state of Ohio was, at least at the beginning, a land dominated by farming and river trade, with the early flames of industrial capacity beginning to spark to life as the 1800s rolled on. Culturally speaking, the state of Ohio was a unique place, a mishmash of different groups of people all congealed together to create a distinct culture and personality which would come to define the state in its later years. During the founding days of the state, the population consisted mostly of white Virginian and Pennsylvanian settlers. This mix of Southern and Northern ideals came together to create a unique cultural blend that would develop to become simultaneously anti-slavery as well as anti-Black. This blend of ideas would make the state of Ohio one which vehemently opposed the Southern ideals of slavery and also some of the staunchest supporters of the Black Codes and future Jim Crow laws. These ideals would come to cause a divide amongst the population, depending on which region you went to within the state. If you entered the rural locations of the state, you would find yourself in a place which culturally, and even geographically in some cases, resembled Virginia in the South, a farmer's land of hometown values and whitewashed population. If you entered the more urban areas, however, you would enter a land which resembled the ethnically diverse cities of New York and Boston. These were melding pots of culture and ethnicities crammed into the eventual urban sprawls of Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus. This mixed identity would play a key role in making Ohio a political battleground state as well as an enticing place for industrial growth, a land where you could easily find workers for factories with values that spoke to the heart of the American experience. At this point, Ohio can be considered a central force in the US, an agricultural powerhouse that, unsurprisingly, led the state in the production of, you guessed it, corn, while also maintaining a well-structured river trading system to transport goods throughout the state and to the major Great Lake ports and other river systems. That being said, Ohio had yet to take the main stage or develop into the heartland of the United States. This would change with the onset of the Civil War. Ohioans drove the northern war effort against the south, Illinois may have birthed Lincoln, but Ohio gave him his generals. Ulysses S. Grant, William T. Sherman, Philip H. Sheridan, and George McClellan all called Ohio home either by birth or by residence when the war broke out. With these men leading the charge on the battlefield, Ohio also gave the North the War Department head in Edwin M. Stanton. It was said that the Civil War was the defining moment of U.S. history, the effects of which can still be felt today. I tend to agree with this opinion, and as a result of it, we can make a few connections. The Civil War defined the U.S. The Northern Victory defined the war. Ohio produced the men that led the war effort in the North. Therefore, Ohio defined the men which defined the war which defined the United States. Like many things in life, that which we help to define also tends to end up defining us. Ohio was no different. Though it helped change the face of the war which would change the face of the United States, the war, in turn, changed Ohio. The questions which defined the war both before, during, and after would come to shape Ohio as a state, and since Ohio would become the heartland of the U.S., it, being reshaped, would in turn reshape the U.S. Prior to the war, Ohio was the third largest state in the Union in terms of population, and, as stated before, the leading producer in corn. The state was hit hard during the 1840s economic depression and as a result restructured itself to try and privatize all industrial infrastructure changes. This privatization would lead to the state being the first to majorly embrace railroads, so much so that during the 1850s into the 1860s, Ohio was the leading state in track laid, going from 5,000 miles worth of track in the 1850s to 30,000 miles worth of track laid by the 1860s. When Ohio rewrote its constitution in 1851, it strictly limited the state government's ability to invest in corporations, and as a result of this, the creation of things like railroads had to be privately funded. On the surface, this would seem to limit railroad expansion into the state, but the opposite proved to be true. The birth of the railroad would shift trade within the state. Prior to the rails, most of Ohio's trade, as mentioned previously, was river-based and as such flowed southward. This was true for much of the northern states as well and as such tied northern industry to southern markets. This tie to the south was a major factor in delaying any breaks between the north and south and gave abolitionists in states like Ohio fits. This would change with the advent of the railroad. Now the products of the north could be delivered for cheap to other northern markets as well as the eastern and future western markets. This development, which Ohio was the testing ground for, would result in the southern markets no longer being the only place for northern goods. Now, northeastern manufacturers could ship their goods through Ohio and the Midwest to the northwestern markets on the cheap and with speeds that had not yet been seen. The examples set by Ohio would swiftly be adopted by the rest of the North and would lead to the economic boon that the North needed as well as the political unification of the Northern Republican Party. Now the North, firmly led by Ohio, would be able to focus on the issues of slavery amongst the territories as well as slavery in the South. This new drive would help push Lincoln into the presidency. And when the war broke out, Ohio would lead the charge against the rebel southern states. It is important to note that at this time, the state of Ohio's views on slavery typified the views of the North. Many in Ohio opposed slavery, some for moral reasons, others for economic reasons, still others simply didn't care for slavery, but wanted the southern states to be brought back into the Union. Amongst these different views, few of them cared for the actual rights of the blacks enslaved in the South. Were there abolitionists who opposed slavery and wanted to see blacks receive the same rights as whites? Yes, there were, but they were heavily heavily outnumbered by those who opposed slavery but didn't want to give blacks any rights and those who simply opposed Southern secession. These views held by Ohio were also held by the vast majority of the North. When the war broke out, Ohio would send 300,000 men to the war, the highest per capita enlistment rate of any northern state. These men would fight and die to bring the South back into the Union, and to this end, many of them would follow the Ohio native General Sherman as he burned his way down to Atlanta. When the war finally came to an end with the Southern surrender and Reconstruction began, Ohio would lead the nation as it did in the war. The battle for civil rights, as well as the economic ups and downs of the Reconstruction U.S., would all first play out in Ohio, and then the rest of the United States. Even before the war was over, the conflict over voting rights for blacks in Ohio was a fiercely contested topic, and one that would split the state almost down the middle in some regions. The state would be the 7th to ratify the 14th Amendment in 1867, but would also be the 26th state to ratify the 15th Amendment which showed that while the state valued the rights of citizenship, they debated and struggled, much like the rest of the North, with the idea that the blacks deserved those same rights. And for a fun and actually kind of scary fact, did you know that the last state to ratify the 15th Amendment was Tennessee? You know when they ratified it? 1997. That's only 24 years ago as of the recording of this podcast in 2021. That is a crazy and off-topic fact. Back on track. Ohio would lead the nation in debates regarding the citizenship of blacks, and once they ratified the 15th amendment and granted voting rights to blacks in the US, they would see a massive migration of blacks out of the south settling into the state. By 1870, four years after the amendment was proposed, Ohio had the second highest black population in the north. At this time, we see Ohio also begin to lead the US in industrial output following the war. And by 1870, Cleveland would be the leading shipping port on the Great Lakes and the center for oil, iron, and steel manufacturing, and the headquarters of a certain up-and-coming business titan by the name of John D. Rockefeller. Also around this time, Ohio would become the center for politics, with the population growth it was experiencing as well as the fact that the vast majority of the Republican Party at the time either was coming from or based out of Ohio, led to the state becoming the battleground in the election years to come, often acting as the deciding factor in presidential elections and key seats in both the House and Senate. Speaking of politics, the time between 1868 and 1920 can be considered the golden age of Ohio politics. The presidency was dominated by men who were either born in Ohio or rose to political prominence within the state. The list of Ohio-based presidents of this time are Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, William Howard Taft, and Warren Harding. Now, something you will notice about all of these presidents is the fact that you probably forgot one or all of their names on your president's quizzes back in high school. With the exception of the war hero Grant, Imperialist McKinley, Talking Cat Garfield, and Fat Man Taft, most of these presidents were pretty forgettable. Yet if they were so forgettable, why bring them up at all? Well, simple. The fact that they were president says something about Ohio and not that it's boring and forgettable. Jokes aside, this string of presidents shows us the power of Ohio during this time period, a state that was industrially on the rise and whose society would come to set the model for the rest of the United States. The birth of the heartland can be found during the reigns of these Ohio presidents. One of the key factors in the political dominance of Ohio can be found in its industrial strength. Ohio was swiftly becoming the beating heart of industry in the United States, producing massive amounts of oil, steel, and iron, as well as manufactured goods. And when it was not producing goods, it was shipping them out, acting like a literal beating heart of trade from east to west and north to south, using its advanced and extensive rail lines and the Great Lake ports to send out thousands upon thousands of tons of material and products all across the Midwest and the greater United States. This industrial dominance would lead to political dominance as the captains of Ohio industry would fund the political campaigns of Ohio's politicians who made deals with them. A dark side of this deal would be when presidents would use the army to break up strikes when asked to by their industrial benefactors. On top of the industrial and political influence Ohio had over the nation, the state would come to lead socially as well. As is often the case, when people see something that works, they try and copy it or follow along. Well, when Ohio was doing things that seemed to work, other states pulled a monkey-see-monkey-do and followed the leader. A major example of this is when the temperance and labor movements took hold in Ohio and the rest of the nation soon followed in its footsteps. As the temperance movement gained speed in Ohio, so too did it gain speed in other states, and as Ohio's workers unionized and went on strikes or formed militias, so too did the workers in other states follow. On the flip side of this coin, as the Ohio government cracked down on the workers, so too did other states. Of key note, the women's temperance movement gained international attention, which brought Ohio not only to the forefront of U.S. society, but also of international news and influence. All of these things, labor and the temperance movement, industrial growth and political dominance, would lead to Ohio finally becoming the heartland of the United States. Before we end, I want to take a step back in time a little bit and look at an event which took place in the midst of the Civil War and Reconstruction eras that would come to foreshadow our next episode talking about the Rust Belt decline of Ohio. This glimpse at the future birthed from the railroad expansion, the rise and fall of the iron industry in Ohio. Beginning in the early 1800s, it was found that Ohio had multiple rich veins of iron. Throughout the 1800s, through the 1840s, the iron industry would slowly develop in Ohio within the Mahoning Valley. Much of the valley's struggles in development were due to the same problems that plagued most of the state during its early days, a lack of reliable transportation of product. Eventually, as canals were built, the industry would take off tied closely to the coal industry and the river transport system, which would act as the superhighways of Ohio. With the advent of the railroad, and the onset of the Civil War, the iron industry in Ohio would explode. This blessing would come from the demands of the rail industry and the pressures and demands of the war. The railroads would require tracks and bridges, and these new buildings would require iron and coal to be completed. The booming rail industry would lead to a boom in coal mining, and as a result, a boom in iron production. And as a result, the Mahoning Valley of Ohio, with Youngstown at its center, would grow in wealth and population through the 1850s. The war would bring further boons to the region, with demands for the iron products that the war effort needed, as well as the rail systems that the war effort created. When the war ended and reconstruction was in full swing, the iron industry hit an interesting time of both growth and stagnation. While some companies expanded rapidly, others refined their processes and technologies and expanded slowly. Regardless, both methods of growth struggled with the lower demand of iron in the post-war US markets. Now, saying the demand was down is not me saying that there was no demand or that the companies crashed. What I am saying is that the demand was simply lower compared to the demand during the war, which was a struggle for the industry, but not a death sentence. What would be the death sentence for the iron industry in the Mahoning Valley of Ohio was the onset of the steel industry, coupled with another economic depression in the 1870s. The depression of the 1870s kicked the iron industry in Ohio down several pegs, to be sure, but not any more than it did any other industry in both the state and the wider U.S., No, what would be the true killer of the Ohio iron industry would be the rise of the steel industry and the failure of manufacturers in the Iron Valley to recognize the staying power of steel. You see, when steel production first came around, it was slow and expensive, which prompted many iron industry leaders to overlook it. Sure, steel was stronger than iron, but it could never compete with iron on a production level. This was their thought process anyway. This hubris would lead to their downfall when, by the 1880s, steel had become both easier to produce than iron and also cheaper to produce, leading to the rail companies switching over from iron to steel. This loss of their greatest customer would spell doom for the iron industry in Ohio. The final nail in the coffin of the once dominant Ohio iron industry would be the growing labor struggles in the region. Iron production, like most industrial productions, is hard, dangerous, and underpaying work. These conditions would lead to many factories in the region experiencing labor strikes and the formations of labor unions. The battles with the unions, the competition from steel, and the changing markets would eventually kill the iron industry in Ohio. Sort of. You see, the iron industry didn't actually die, clearly, we still use iron products today. When I say the iron industry in Ohio died, I mean that its dominance, its power, and influence died. The actual physical industry itself would simply evolve and change with the times. Some companies would simply scale back production to meet what demands they could without overstretching, while others would combine or be bought out by steel companies. The whole point of me bringing this up in the midst of a history of Ohio is to foreshadow the eventual Rust Belt history of the state. The factors I talked about, economic depression, labor force issues, competitive external pressures, all will in the future contribute to the decline of the heartland of Ohio and the creation of Rust Belt, Ohio, which is what we will cover next episode. So keep all this in mind, and I will see you next time. Hope you have a great day, everyone.